You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Rob Carver and I, Niels Kastoblasen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like my conversation with Richard last week, where we discussed the power of trend following during periods of heightened uncertainty. We also went into trend following in relation to ESG, and the new Top Traders Monthly Trend Following Report that you can find in the blog post section on the website. And we also discussed shorter-term trend following versus longer-term trend following. As you know, the aim of the podcast is to inspire you as an investor. We want to be prerogative without being polarizing. We want to challenge consensus narratives, and we want to advocate for how to think critically about investing in an uncertain world and to provide you with a framework and mindset that we believe is truly robust. And if you want to help us achieve our goal, what we ask of you is that if you can comment, if you can continue to send us your questions, if you can share these episodes with your friends, and not least if you can rate and review them in iTunes or Spotify, we would greatly appreciate it, because this is the best way for us to see that you get some value from our time and dedication each week to create these episodes. And as long as that continues, we will, of course, continue to do them. So with all that said, Rob, good to see you. Good to have you back here. How are things in the UK? Uh, miserable. <laughs> it's raining outside. And, uh, you know, the situation in Ukraine is pretty depressing. So uh, trying to stay positive, but, but not easy at the moment. Yeah, no, I hear you. Now, um, of course, as, as usual, I want to just acknowledge all of you who left a rating and review and, and, and a nice comment this week. We very much appreciate that. In terms of a market wrap, of course, the focus, I'm sure you can guess, is just the heightened volatility we see. It was intense last week. This week, it got even more elevated, frankly, across the board, with energy and grain markets continuing to skyrocket. We had developed foreign exchange markets showing some weakness versus the dollar. We had heightened equity volatility, and if you measure it by the VIX index, it closed the week towards the higher end of the range. So, of course, this is all a result of the Russian invasion in the Ukraine. While the general population is aware of these market dislocation, the rise in the price of gasoline is a it's going to be a direct hit to the wallet um, and one that people are worried about, I think. As we close out this week, economic forecasters are attempting to back into the price of a gallon of gasoline should the uh, global economy halt the import of Russian oil. And their forecasts are, to say the least, worrying. Estimates are as high as $150 to $200 per barrel of oil, with gasoline topping out at $8 to $10 per gallon. That's in the US, where clearly it's even a lot cheaper than what we can face here in Europe. Should the precious commodity rise to that level, it's reasonable to expect that the US economy, along with a lot of other developed countries, will be in recession. As it is, the Atlanta Federal Reserve GDP calculator uh, is forecasting 0.04% economic growth in Q1 2022. 
And you have to wonder how the invest in, investing public is going to react to a 0% economic growth after enjoying six quarters of eye-popping economic growth fueled by emergency COVID stimulus. The first estimate of that growth comes at the end of April. So we have plenty of time to worry about this uh, between now and then. And let's not forget, by the way, the rise of other commodity markets like grains, which will also have an effect on the price we pay for food in the shops at some point. For his part, Fed Chair Powell's testimony before Congress signaled that a 25 basis points rate hike is likely at the conclusion of the March 16th FOMC meeting. But he did leave open the possibility of a 50 basis points rate hike. Many commentators may be guilty of being too critical of the Fed, but they conceded that inflation is a problem months ago and they still haven't gotten around to ending emergency monetary policy. That criticism is going to intensify when the rise in energy prices is factored into the consumer price indices. Given the backdrop of the terrible atrocities befalling the citizens of the Ukraine, not much attention really was paid to the uh, employment report released Friday morning, but it did measure um, a continued growth. Uh, The US created um, about 678,000 new jobs, exceeding the forecast by more than 250,000 jobs. And to put this into perspective, under normal circumstances, 200,000 new jobs in a month would be considered a solid report. But economic fundamentals are, and will likely continue, take a back seat to the aggression in Eastern Europe. Rob, um, let's talk about what has caught your attention, maybe outside uh, of, of the Ukrainian situation. I'm sure we're going to get to that. Um, but just in terms of maybe markets and, and other things that you may have uh, been picking up in the last few weeks since we last Yeah. Uh, first, just point out to our American listeners that we already pay about $10 a gallon equivalent in the UK, uh, £1.50 a litre. So um, you guys don't know how good you have it in terms of cheap cheap petrol, believe me. Um, yeah, so it's been a pretty interesting week um, and actually... It's kind of, I find these periods quite difficult because actually, so first of all, I should say it's been an extremely good week in terms of performance, my trend following and carry systems, my futures trading systems. Um, and this, is, it kind of feels awkward talking about it to me. And we had a little bit of a a sort of mini debate on Twitter, actually, because Niels, yeah. you posted something saying basically, isn't trend following doing well? And some replied saying, you know, well, really, is this the time to be kind of bragging about your performance sort of thing? Which which wasn't what I was doing. Absolutely, but, of course, yeah, yeah. it wasn't your but intention. Anyways, Absolutely, yeah. but but these things can always be interpreted out of context. And you know what? It yeah. kind of reminds me of two thousand and eight. And I remember coming home from work one day and saying to my wife, "You know, the world's blowing up. It's a complete mess." Um, but on the other hand, you know, our fund just had our best ever day. So how am I supposed to feel? You know, it's it's very difficult. Um, yeah. Because it's, I think it's natural to be kind of pleased with with good performance, um, but also natural to to feel uncomfortable um, about the fact that that you know this, you, you you're doing well when the rest of the world is doing badly. Even you know it, it's it's a weird kind of kind of correlation causation kind of feelings that I have, um, and um, I guess the way I kind of justify it to myself is, and I put this on Twitter as well, is to say, well. If we think of trend following as as a kind of crisis alpha stroke insurance product, you know, 
there's a crisis happening, Trendfollowing's doing well, that's compensating me at least for you know losses in my portfolio elsewhere that have you know my long only portfolio so it's kind of doing its job it's just doing its job we shouldn't criticize things when they're doing their job and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a I'd call it a sort of sense of quiet satisfaction that it's doing what it's designed to do which is kind of protect us or, or our clients in your case um you know from from these extreme events and and um you know it, it's it's not about kind of for me at least it shouldn't be about you know oh look we're doing so well and brilliant and oh you know and and oh isn't it great there's a war on and all this kind of attitude um that's absolutely not how i you know i mean to come across and, and i know you feel the same way having said all that um so for me personally the the last week was was uh, extremely good for in terms of pnl so um not much happened on monday not much happened on tuesday on Wednesday, I had probably one of my best ever days. I think I was up five and a half percent on Wednesday. Thursday, I was up another three and a half percent. Friday, I gave some of that back. So for the week as a whole, my PL was seven point four percent, which you know for a, a week is obviously extremely good. It is. So you know, if you were to just be really naive and say, "Oh, if you could make that every week, you'd make." You know, hundreds of percents a year. Obviously, that's that's silly, but but, but it just just to give an indication of the the size of that number. And um, in terms of the um, positions that, that that I made profits in, uh, my most profitable position was heating oil, mm-hmm. uh, followed by Brent crude, and then WTI crude. And I also made some money in corn, iron, uh, gold, um, and a couple of soya markets. Um, so. You know, you, there's kind of a, an obvious story there linking in with what's going on in, in the markets more generally. Um, I didn't have a position in wheat, um, which, which was uh, interesting because actually wheat was limit up, I think, a couple of days this week, which it was, is yeah. something we don't see so much nowadays. People forget this this limit up, limit down thing that exists in, in futures markets. So yeah, certainly a hell of a week in terms of performance. Uh, taking a slightly longer term view back to sort of year to date, so sure. this is now effectively two months and three days of performance, um, up just under 20%, so 19.2%. Uh, and again, you know, it's the same story, the, the most profitable market there, heating oil, Brent, gasoline, crude, and so on and so forth, uh, with losses mostly in equity and volatility markets. Quite an interesting thing, actually, I did was to uh, look at the the sector attribution for my P&L year to date. Because that tells a really interesting story. Because one thing we talk about, we've talked about before, is how the different kind of sector weightings can make a big difference to how different CTAs do. So, um, if I look at my sector attribution, there's a very, very clear dividing line for what I call the financials market. So that's equity, vol, FX, bonds. I lost money in every single one of those markets. Um, for the non-financial markets, so that's uh, metals, um, agriculturals, and energy markets in particular, I was up. Um, so, you know, if I'd had a more of a weighting towards financials markets, I wouldn't be up 20%. I would potentially be down. And actually, I know people who do have quite heavy sector weighting towards financials and who are actually losing money um, this year, even though, you know, you'd think, yeah. well, <laughs> how is that possible? You know, but they are still trading energy markets, but their weighting to them is is isn't big enough to compensate for the losses in financials. So, um, but but you know, the, in terms of the, the 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 sector attribution, it's basically I could sum it up as energy markets plus noise, because I'm right. up like eighteen percent in energy markets, and then wow. small pluses and minuses and everything else. So it really, for me at least, has been just just a 
one big um, trade in in energy markets. Um, looking at my my current risk, um, interestingly and actually quite curiously, you could argue, and this is almost a you know telling you that the, the the way I measure risk is wrong, and I know it's wrong because I, I assume that markets have Gaussian returns when I measure my risk. I assume they have symmetric returns. I assume there aren't fat tails. Um, so my my annualized standard deviation um, is was was running at about sixteen percent through Wednesday and is now down to fourteen percent. So just just to quickly explain what that means, that means that on an average day I should make or lose one percent, roughly. So that means Wednesday was you know, if you believe my risk model was a six standard deviation, uh, sorry five and a half standard deviation day, yeah. which is. Incredibly improbable. Should 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 happen every once every few hundred thousand years or something ridiculous. So that just goes to show that you know that that, that standard deviation is a flawed measure of risk. But that's fine because I I know that and I'm aware of that. So interesting, actually, I closed my position heating all yesterday. That was almost certainly because it's got so risky and so volatile mm-hmm. that that it that it's um, just you know the position would just be too much yeah. for my for my capital. Um, so now my my biggest longs are. Still in energy markets, Brent crude, also soy oil, soybeans. Uh, my biggest short, although my shorts, I should say, much smaller than my longs, is in European VIX. So that's interesting that you kind of expect that. It's, that is an interesting still position, to be short I have VIX, to say. Uh, interested, but actually um, my system um, would has ge- generated a closing trade for that, for that. So it would actually close that trade on Monday. So, um, But I'm also short uh, yen dollar. Um, and a couple of equity markets. So, so kind of a. It's my portfolio is still very much a long, kind of agricultural, long energy portfolio with a little bit of added noise from other things. It's basically the bet that I'm I've currently got on. Yeah, I mean it's quite interesting, right? Because we spent some time uh, a couple of months ago going through your new, I think you call it um, dynamic optimization That's methodology. Right. Yeah. yeah, and and how you would kind of take 140 potential markets down to a much smaller subset. And it's actually seemed to have picked pretty well (laughs) in terms of getting you into some of these trends. So, I mean, talk about the best thing you can you know, try as a as a systematic uh, trend follower, and that is to get stress tested right out of the bat, which is uh, kind of what your system has been through here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, for example, I'm not long wheat, um, but I have long things that are correlated with wheat, like, for example, the soy complex, corn. You mentioned yeah. corn, corn, and uh, and so on and so forth. So, so yeah, it's kind of it's t- similar. You know, um, I'm um, my heating all that might seem like a strange one because. Who knows what heating oil futures are doing? It's all about the crude, um, but obviously that that was a way of expressing that energy bet in, in a in a very pure way. So that's why it was my biggest position, I guess. So yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I I do want to um, talk a little bit about you know what you mentioned on Twitter and the kind of this weird situation that we sometimes find ourselves in. Uh, but before I do that. There's not much I can add to what's what's going on in the trend following world. I mean, I think again, uh, trend followers, you know, as as a group, we are locked into these trends that started actually before 
the invasion. Let's not forget that. That's important, I think, to uh, to note. We're not jumping in because of what happened. We were already there. Um, but of course, yeah, in particular in commodities, that's where we've seen some quite significant price moves in the last week and not surprising energy and grain sectors are going to be the biggest contributors. But I think metals are doing well um, uh, as well for, for, for trend followers who have a healthy allocation in that, in that sector. Reversals in fixed income, I mean, they're certainly meaningful. Uh, we've seen some rising prices and, uh, you know, investors are believing that that's a safe place to be uh, for the moment. And uh, for people who listen to us every week, they would know that we've been short, uh, as trend follows, we've been short uh, fixed income for a little while now. So that's obviously hurting equities depending on your time frame i would say some longer term managers they still got small long positions in equities and i don't think anything dramatic shorter term managers probably uh, got out uh, maybe even got short in some and by the way longer term managers would probably also be short some of the asian equities um, and have been for some for some time currencies i imagine most people are pretty flat in terms of performance as also softs uh, in, if you look at what's happened this uh, week in terms of my own trend barometer, uh, it's confirming the environment. It's uh, closed yesterday at 66. That's a strong reading, very strong reading. And it's been strong uh, now for quite a few weeks, confirming this strong performance period that we're going through at the moment. In terms of volatility, of course, I know you trade the VIX, which we had a little bit of a chat about last time. I have no idea how you do it as a trend follower. Anyways, but um, the VIX has, you know, been pretty composed in terms of a reaction to the events in the last couple of weeks. Um, and for the majority of this week, it seemed like the um, new month of March brought us pretty much the same. At the beginning of the week, we saw a very small rise in uncertainty which not only helps to explain why we saw a larger than expected rise in the VIX on Tuesday, where it had its weekly peak at 35.2 points. But perhaps one could argue that the uh, temporary comeback of appetite for buying S&P options was more focused on the fact that Fed was, the Fed was speaking on Wednesday, maybe more so than what was going on in, in Ukraine on that day specifically. The demand for options was rather short-lived and the remainder of the week was similar to what we've seen in the last month, a relatively moderate reaction uh, of the VIX to the S&P 500. We had pretty sluggish demand for protection and a comparatively flat skew slope. These factors finally resulted in the VIX closing the week at 31.7, up about 3.5%. The VIX futures term structure, on the other hand, remained fully inverted throughout the whole week. Uh, the most interesting piece of data at the moment is the historically large spread between longer dated VIX futures and their corresponding VIX index values. And uh, what we see at the moment is that it stood at almost four points for six-month VIX futures. And the VIX fu uh, futures term structure is seemingly pricing in a somewhat significant medium-term recovery at some point. Um, I know I've said this the prior few weeks that I'm not going to spend too much time on my own trend following model because we post the data at the end of each month, but it is up for the year, double digit, um, and um, the risk to stop uh, at the moment is around 12.8%, so nothing too dramatic, um, uh, you know, pretty much what you would expect. Now, Rob, before we jump into all the questions we have, just just a quick, uh, because people might just, just to want to make sure people don't um, uh, either saw the tweet that I tweeted out of context or 
heard what you said and thought, mm, that's weird. So I did nothing like promoting trend-following performance during a crisis like this. What I was making a point was, I said, we've been told for so many years, I mean, I've been doing this for more than 30 years, you've been doing it for a long time as well, and we always keep being told that trend-following doesn't work because markets are efficient. That's one, at least that's one view and has been a very strong view. And my point was just that if markets are efficient and you can see a buildup of potential risk, and I think most people realized that something was going to happen around the border of Ukraine and, and Russia. So we could see that, i.e. the information was out there in the markets. Well, if that's the case, then markets shouldn't be searching when the event happened because markets should be efficient. So that was my only point. It has actually nothing to do with the fact that whether trend followers were making money or losing money. It's just the fact that we saw massive price moves and according to the efficient market hypothesis, well, if all the information is in the markets, you shouldn't really see that. So it's just a point to prove that, of course, as we have done for the last almost decade on this podcast, we don't believe markets are efficient and actually think that trends will continue to occur from time to time. So that was the point of the of the tweet. But you did you do bring up a good point. And um and actually I got a message from one of our loyal listeners, Simon, um, this morning, um, where he also had a conversation uh, within his family about whether and you know how to interpret performance during a period where there's clearly hardship and some awful events happening. But we are in a strategy where we, at this point in time, are benefiting from some of these price trends. And there is no doubt, and I don't think anyone that comes on this podcast would suggest otherwise, that what we see right now is absolutely tragic and it's awful. But I also want to be completely transparent and say, we pretty much see awful and tragic events every single day of the year in the world. It, this is... Not like this is the only tragic event that occurs. There are many other people who are having hard times and are facing wars in other parts of the world. They may not be shown on television to the same extent. It may not involve NATO or EU, but let's not forget that there are many, many people there. Now, what I will say about trend following is, maybe compared to other strategies, we are not trying to, to um, predict an outcome and make money from it. And, and I think that makes the strategy quite neutral. It's a non-political strategy, in my view, because we do nothing different, um, you know, today or from what we were doing last week. And as people have know, and, and, and I know I'm preaching to the choir to some extent, otherwise you wouldn't be listening to us every week, but we have argued for years why this type of strategy is valuable in a portfolio. Um, and my worry is, and, and I was going to bring this up later, but let's just take it now. My worry is, and you, because you used the word, so I'm going to pick up on that. My worry is that people are going to come out and see, look, there, we, there you see, it made money in a crisis. That's why it's crisis alpha. And I'm just thinking, oh no, I hope not. That's not what we're going to try once more because we did it during the financial crisis. The term was coined um, actually by someone that I have a very high respect for and who's been on the podcast many times. And, and I thought initially this is a great term because investors can kind of hold on to it. And it is true that if you go back and you look at 
this crisis, if you look at COVID, if you look at the great financial crisis, if you look at the dot-com crisis, if you look at the crash of 1987, trend followers did make money. So if you just look at the evidence, that's true. But you forget all the times when there's no crisis and we make money. And therefore, I'm not a, I, I hope people will not come out now saying, yeah, this is great. This proves that trend following is a crisis alpha strategy. It's not, and we don't know if we're going to make money in the next crisis that will come. So that's my worry, <laughs> that we get a lot of investors who may not have done their research uh, and they buy into this you know, and hope to get instant protection from their trend followers because maybe they didn't have any. Uh, and their equity is already down 20%, so they need something because this doesn't look like it's going to go away anytime soon. And it could actually turn into a much, much bigger worldwide crisis uh, or even war, if we're going to be very straight about it. So, um, yeah, so that's so. those are some of my thoughts. I don't know what you feel about that, Rob. Yeah, I like. I think I can draw a clear difference between, say, us now and say people in, say, the Brexit referendum. Um, so there was a, there was a hedge, for, for example, there was a hedge fund manager who was, you know, trying to profit from Brexit, but also causing it because he actually donated money to the, you know, the Leave campaign. Um, we also have, you know, our personal government, Jacob Rees-Mogg, who similarly, you know, has kind of in, hedge fund investments, which are. Um, you know, position to profit from Brexit and, again, was a massive campaigner on the Brexit side. You can think of examples of people who have invested in, say, emerging market debt at a massive discount and then actually taken the government to court and forced them to make them whole and pay at par value, even though that money is coming from an economy and people that are really in, in, deep, in deep trouble. So there's this expression kind of disaster capitalists, vulture capitalists, you know, vultures, vulture hedge funds and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, I, I don't really think we're in that category at all, definitely. So I think the important thing is, Rob, that, you know, we have had a consistent story for decades, right? Actually, I don't think our story at, at any point in time has changed despite all the disasters that we've gone through, right? And I think we try... Uh, you know, maybe we will do some episodes at some point where we're going to go into some of the politics. But for the most part, we're pretty apolitical. We, we, you know, we just follow the rules. I mean, that's uh, that's what we've encouraged people to do for all these years. Just you know, develop some sound rules and follow them. And um, and in fact, turn off the news uh, and and don't get involved in it as, as such. That doesn't mean you shouldn't get involved in helping people who need your help. That's completely different. You really should. But yeah, no, I mean, it's important not to take these things out of context. and But it's also important for us to, I think, just continue the conversation. And, um, you know, we get a lot of stick for not delivering performance uh, during many periods of time where other things do well. And um, you didn't hear anyone complain about, you know, Moderna doing well uh, from COVID. I mean, people kind of cheered it, right? So I don't think we should take any criticism for doing our job at this stage. Um, but we should all uh, recognize that there are people who are truly suffering and we should do what we can to, uh, to help them out. Let's move on to the questions because there's quite a few of them. But of course, you instructed me last year, Rob, to bring you a question at the beginning of every time we spoke. And that is, how's your book coming along? 
Yeah, it's going well, actually. Um, so I'm currently on, let me see if I can remember, I'm on chapter 19. So, you know, progress is being made. I'm, I'm pretty much near the end of part two of the book, which sounds impressive, except when you remember there are six parts. Oh, <laughs> but, okay. But um, the, the parts get shorter as you go through. So, you know, um, I'm, I'm kind of going there. And I'm, I'm coming up with some interesting results. And, and um, I will actually... Um, you know, when when uh, when appropriate, in some of these, some of these questions, I will mention some interesting results I found in the research I've been doing for this book. So, um, so yeah, I heard something interesting. I'll share you. I'll share this idea with you. I know you're planning to come out with this, uh, you know, six hundred page book, <laughs> etc. And people should go and buy it, of course, uh, like all the other books you've written. But I heard of someone whom I have a lot of respect for who has written also quite a few books, but this time she decided to write the book in Substack. Okay. So her next book is being written in Substack pretty much. So people obviously subscribe to her feed to get the content, but it's kind of an ongoing process whether she will do the final publishing in as one big book at the end. Yeah. But it's actually an interesting idea. Who, who is of, the author, Niels? Am I allowed to ask? Yes, uh, of course. Um, of course you are. It's a lady called Dr. Pippa Malmgren. Oh, yes. So yes. she's, a, yeah, yeah. Yes, she's a, a former White House advisor. Yeah. And uh, so it's nothing to do with investing, yeah. but she's pretty good on global yeah. politics for sure. When you think about that, this, this is actually going back to, if you, um, if you go back to the Victorian era, Typically, books like, for example, Charles Dickens' books were serialized in newspapers, which mm -hmm. you could argue is kind of the you know the late nineteenth yeah. century Substack, sure. um, and then they would come out as a you know as a as a book afterwards. So um, yeah, you know, maybe we're going back to that. It's not a bad idea. You never know. Yeah. You never know. I just thought it was interesting. Yeah. Anyways, all right. Well, let's get into some questions. Uh, the first one here, and I think there's like ten or more. This today is weird. Anyways. Um, First one is from Harry. Harry writes, 40 years ago, AHL were building fortunes during what seems as common sense now, sci as in brackets, scientific, systematic approach underpinned by computers. What might next frontier be that seems silly today, but common sense later? Who's the next Harding? And what do you speculate he's obsessing about? Very difficult question, Harry, it's, I have to say. It but, is. Yeah. But it's a good one. Um I mean, first of all, slight slight correction. AHL's thirty five years old this year, so it's not quite quite reached forty. Yeah, um, it was founded in uh, nineteen eighty seven, and um, I, I'm one hundred percent sure of that because a few years ago I got invited to the the, the kind of thirtieth birthday party. Well, I did the thirtieth anniversary interview with the three guys. That's right, that you did about that year. is about five years ago, yeah. I, I so, guess. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, which can be found on the podcast, yes, of course, somewhere. and it is it's probably one of the most listened to episodes, and not surprising. It is a fantastic conversation because these just I'm just going to do a little plug here for that, Rob, um, because uh, it's somewhere in the top traders on plug series, so you can find it. It's a three part conversation. Uh, no, maybe it's top traders roundtable. Sorry, it's top traders roundtable when you go to the um, website. But what was fascinating about the conversation, first of all, we did it in the Abbey Road studios, right? So uh, Adam Harding and Luke, they had to physically sit together. And of course, they know each other well. But it seemed initially like they had not seen each other for a little while. And of course, there was, I think, a little bit of, there's, I think there's a little bit of a rivalry to some extent. And at the time, Winton was just 
much bigger than Aspect, right? Like four times bigger or something like that. Today, I think they're about equal size. But you know what? What was interesting is they asked for about 15 minutes on their own before I joined them just to set, I think they just set a little bit of rules. But once the conversation started, it didn't take five minutes until you could just see now they were straight back to 1987, having fun, great stories, great insights. It is actually one of my favorite podcast episodes that I've ever recorded is that conversation. And these guys are incredibly smart to listen to. And you know what, Rob? And I'm sure you might agree uh, with me when I say that. I think the big surprise was the A, Adams. He yeah. was brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, and interesting, he's the only one of those three I haven't actually met. So, okay. Yeah. No, cool dude. Yeah. Obviously, he's the one who left the industry, exactly. by the way. Yeah. But, anyways, all right, back to your point. Yeah. Anyway, I'm glad for that little interjection, Niels, because it's given me time to think about what is actually a very difficult question. And <laughs> I, I've is, been yeah. desperately kind of racking my brains while you were talking, trying to trying to think of something. I, I guess why why this question is difficult because you're you're asking about someone or something that that we just isn't on our radar, right? It's something undiscovered yeah. that's out there. And and it's like, oh, what seems silly today? Because that's the other thing, because I think there are lots of things in the market that people are, that are quite overhyped and people are quite are convinced that are going to be the next big thing. And, um, you know, some, some like, I, I don't know, taking a random example, like artificial intelligence, for example, sure. maybe. Um, and, um, but, you know, by definition, this question is about something that isn't in that category, right? Something that just seems bizarre and unknown. So the honest answer is, I, you know, I don't know. And as to who the next um, Harding will be, Harry, well, Harry, maybe it will be you because I, I actually know, I know who asked this question, and he's quite a young guy, so he's he's near the start of his career, so uh, may, maybe it could be you. It could be you. It could be you, Harry. Yeah. And so I was also racking my brain a little bit about what to come up with because the the honest answer is, of course, we have no idea. But I will say to Harry though that what I think might sound silly today is that thirty years from now there's going to be people out there doing rules-based, systematic trend following on a global diversified portfolio and still make money. And I think that's the silly part that you, in a sense, that you have a strategy that's already worked for 50 years, but also I think it's going to work in the next 30 years. So, all right, let's move on to a question from Ravi. Um, Ravi writes, we're heading for low growth and high inflation, i.e. stagflation. What are the implications to the markets and the wider global economy? Um, again, it's that's quite a hard question to answer. I mean, I, I can point you towards a little bit of empirical research. So, one thing I do think about this kind of you know economic situation is it's probably going to be quite bad for the traditional sixty forty portfolio, and and there's three reasons for that. So there's three reasons why the returns of the sixty forty portfolio have been so good over say the last ten years. And one is the fact that bonds have done well. One is the fact that equities have done well. And the third is the fact that they've had negative correlation. So if you combine those three things together, you've got the absolute perfect, you know, harmonious situation. You've got two assets that make money with negative correlation. That means in theory, you could use lots of leverage, for example, and have a, a portfolio with an incredibly good Sharpe ratio. Um, now, one thing about what well, all of those things have been caused by the, the sort of nice economic environment that we've had and, and low low inflation and also falling interest rates and secular repricing of equities, all those three things together have made things look wonderful. 
So the, there are three, you know, there are flies in each of those three ointments, effectively. So equity valuations are very high. They're higher than they were in 2007, pre-crisis. They're almost as high as they were in 2000, depending on exactly how you do the, the you know, the valuation. That's the first thing. The second thing is that obviously interest rates are, um, although they've, you know, they were going up. Now they've come down again with the, the situation in Ukraine, but but they're still, you know, plot any historical chart of any length and interest rates are going to be, it's going to be a straight line downwards, right? Interest rates are at very low levels. Um, and well, that means you, means you will, you know, bonds can still make money from, for example, carry. You're not going to see the sort of tailwind of secular repricing. So that almost the best case scenario is that, that bonds stay where they are. The interest is still an upward sloping yield curve. So you, stun, you can make a little bit of money, but it's not going to be, you know, as much as you've made over the last 40, uh, 40 odd years. Um, and then the third thing, and this is a bit more subtle, but but correlations. And I came across an interesting research paper uh, when I was doing a preparation for a, a conference that I'm doing uh, next month, uh, and it showed the. Um, I'll I'll put this on my on my blog or on Twitter for people to look at. Um, but it basically shows the correlation of stocks and bonds um, since 1900. So it's a very long data set. And on the same axis, it shows the level of inflation. And there's a pretty good relationship there. Um, and then generally speaking, when inflation is high, stocks and bonds have a positive correlation. When inflation is low, they have a negative correlation. Um, and there's kind of an economic thing going on behind this, which is that when uh, inflation is low, stocks and bonds are driven by the the kind of risk-on-risk-off factor, which makes them negatively correlated. But when inflation is high, they're kind of both driven by this inflation factor that makes them positively correlated. That's kind of what's going on. So we've got a situation where bonds aren't going to do as well as they've done. Equities probably aren't going to do as well as they've done, but also they're likely to be positively correlated. So, so that, you know, for the people who are still big fans of 6040, you might want to have a, a bit of a closer look at your portfolio allocation and, and sort of about think about some alternatives. Of, you know, there's obviously one alternative that we could propose, um, but there are other things that maybe you should be thinking about allocating to. So that that's kind of just just one little bit of empirical evidence as to what I think could be an outcome of this environment. But obviously, there are there are lots of other things that could happen as well. Yeah, no, I think that's a great answer, and I completely agree uh, with that, and I look forward to seeing that uh, data that you uh, point at. But I, I will say to Ravi, actually, that Rob and I have a little surprise for you, actually, and I, Rob has no idea what I'm talking about, but he didn't mention the word carry, and therefore I'm going oh, yes. to point you to, yes, I'm going to point you to a, an episode Rob and I have recorded, and it's going to come out soon in the Top Traders Unplugged series. It's going to be number 120 with Kevin Coldar. And actually, he's one of the co-authors of a book called The Rise of Carry. And there we go into a lot more detail about what we think might happen once, if not already, the carry regime, which has been exactly what Rob described, a regime where you made money from doing nothing in the last 30, 40 years except owning stocks and bonds, what happens when that comes to an end? Uh, I think you'll find that conversation quite interesting. Um, so give it about 10 days or so, uh, mid-March. Uh, I think it's going to come out around that time. Okay, question from uh, Zoran. The Ukraine invasion has caused parabolic movements in several commodities. How do you navigate through such events as a systematic investor? How do you address the instant multiple X increase in ATR for one, adding positions, and B, adjusting stop losses? Great question. 
Rob? So the first thing to say is that I, I don't actually use um, sort of stop losses and ATR my system. As I said before, I use a continuous trading system. Um, and that, that can mean some things that are weird. So for example, closing my heating oil position on Friday seems a bit weird, but, but basically that's been driven by the fact that the risk has increased. Um, and even if I had more capital, I wouldn't have been closing that position, but I would still have been probably reducing it because of the increase in risk. So that that's kind of how you, you manage these changes in risk with a with a system like mine. Um, with a, with a more traditional system where you're 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 basically putting a position on of some size with some stop loss. Um, and when you put that trade on initially, that that position sizing and stop loss are kind of aligned together for the amount of risk that, that you want to take on that on that position. And then if things get riskier, either in a good way, as we've we've seen in in if you're long wheat or long long crude oil or long heating oil in my case, um, then you've you've kind of got a couple of different options. A very very traditional trend follower uh, might say, "Well, I'm I'm not going to change anything. I'm going to keep my position the same size. I'm going to keep my stop loss." I can't the same believe size. who that might be. I, I don't know. I know. I, no, we don't, we don't know. know. No. But they might. And he's not from te- By the way, he's not from Texas. By not? the way, he was a little bit upset was about he? that one. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, well, I apologize. I apologize uh, <laughs> infinite amounts for that. Um, but but you might argue, well, you know, I'm going to keep everything the same as it is, and there's an argument for that. the The downside of that is because the the risk has increased, your position will be much riskier than you originally intended, but your stop will also be effectively much tighter because the market's moving much more than you intended. Um, a small pullback will end up with closing that position. You know, and when you put the position on, it wouldn't have seemed like a it would have seemed like a big pullback, but because it's got a lot more volatile, it, it you know it could close quite quickly, which is not what you expected. So there, there is an alternative, which is to say, well, things have changed. I'm still I still want to have the position on, but first of all, it's got much riskier than I expected, and secondly, my stop loss is now effectively much tighter. So I'm going to adjust both of those things. So in other words, I'm going to reduce the size of my position. And this assumes that you have the kind of headroom to do that. In other words, you aren't just trading a single contract. And I've talked about this discretization problem before. Um, but say if you had, say, four contracts of heating oil and the risk doubled, then all of the things being equal, you'd want to halve that position and you'd want to double the size of your stop loss. So now you've got the same amount of risk on the trade that you originally intended to have. And you've also got about the same probability of closing that trade out given an adverse movement. So you kind of compensated in both directions for the for the change in risk. Um, now, what you shouldn't do is do any one of those things. <laughs> so, for example, what you probably shouldn't do is say increase the size of your stop loss, but not change your position size, because now you're, you're, you that's very dangerous, right? Because you've now you're now going to hold on to the position. Again, if there's an adverse movement, you're going to lose basically effectively twice as much money as you thought you'd you'd lose when you initially put the trade on because risk has doubled. Um, So you've kind of got the worst of both worlds there. Similarly, if you cut your position size but keep your stop loss unchanged, okay, your risk has gone down, but again, you've still got this problem where a small adverse movement is going to close your position prematurely potentially. So I would say either be hardcore and traditional, there's nothing wrong with that, if that's the way you want to trade, and just keep everything the same. That's certainly simpler or adjust both the stop loss and the position size at the same time. Don't just do one or the other. Yeah, no, I think that's great advice. And Zoran, I would uh, point you 
seems like that's all I'm doing today. I'm just pointing them to episodes that we where we've talked about this, but that's that's good. Um, I'm going to point you to a um, two solo episodes I did, Systematic Investor 120 and 121, I think, where I went through the design of my own trend-following model because actually it talks about why it was designed using different types of trend-following and also um, the fact that we uh, designed it with different types of stops. So to give you an example, I mentioned earlier that it's doing, like Rob, it's doing really well uh, this year. But I also mentioned that the risk to stop is only around 12.8%, which is completely normal. So what it's doing is it's moving its stops up. I've not made any changes to it. It's just doing its job. And part of that job is to adjust its stop loss settings along the way. And some of the ways that I do it has to do with the fact that if the market has, as you say, some parabolic movements, some of the stops will be very sensitive and move up quite quickly. Now, what that meant, and actually, um, I think Brian, uh, also another loyal listener, I think he sent me a question this week by email saying, has the model been stopped out of a few things along this path up? And the answer is yes. And actually, I, I sort of, when I ran the the model this morning, I noticed that even on Friday, it got stopped out of a couple of the energy markets because they started by selling off Friday morning before they surged. And that was enough to take out a couple of sort of part positions, not the full position, because it has different models trading the same markets. So so I think that's the way you do it. You spread out your your methodology, you spread out your stops and, and, and so on and so forth. So in that sense, I am a little bit different than Jerry, sort of one entry, one exit, one stop. But on the other hand, he does use different timeframes. So he ends up with having, you know, for the whole market, he does end up having slightly different entries, slightly different exits, uh, and so on and so forth. So we're not that different. It's just the methodology we use. Um, But it's a good question. But I think that this is one of the things that, again, trend following does pretty well because we don't have to think about what are we going to do now with these extraordinary market moves, it's all there. It, we have a plan every day we come to work. We have a plan for what we're going to do. And I think that's actually the strength of, of trend following is this completely non-emotional approach to the trading day. If you were doing this as a discretionary trader, I don't think you would have had much sleep the last two weeks. And I don't think you would have made the best decisions the last two weeks. And I think this is the value that you get on top of hopefully performance from trend following. All right, moving on. Question from Richard. Pretty sure it's not our Richard, but it's another Richard. Um, If trend following ever became overcrowded, could you identify it? And uh, would you take any action? Um, uh, It's a difficult one, this. I, I have a belief that trend following is less likely to become overcrowded than other kinds of strategies. So the, the kinds of strategy that's most likely to become overcrowded is is a sort of relative value where you're buying something you think is cheap and selling something that's expensive. Or indeed, going back to our earlier discussion, carry carry trades can oh, become yes. overcrowded. Because the, the what will tend to happen is that the cheap thing will become more expensive, the expensive thing will become cheaper, and the, the amount of juice available in the trade, if you like, will narrow. Um, and that, to me, that's a crowded trade then. And often you've then got people to putting leverage on to, to kind of get more juice out of what's left over. And, um, and it's leveraged crowded trades that are particularly difficult because people can be forced out of positions that they, they would rather, otherwise rather stay in because they still see value in them. And you get this, what I call the death spiral, where 
people are just panicking and selling out and so on and so forth. What you do see in, in trend following markets is if there are too many CTAs in a particular market, um, and it, it really is about markets individually because if you look at the size of the CTA universe, um, you know it's it's something like a few hundred billion dollars, right? Roughly. Yeah. Um, and the total amount of investable assets out there is in the order of a few trillion dollars, so it's a pretty small percentage. Um, but there are there could be possibly individual futures markets or even individual months within individual futures markets where most of the people trading there are CTAs running similar kinds of model and and what what you can see potentially is if you have a long uptrend everyone piles in has got all got the same position on all the same way around and then that trend breaks even a little bit if people are trading very similar models then potentially everyone will get out at the same time um, and you also have this issue where um, there's, there's, a, there's actually now another kind of industry, which is the risk parity industry, um, which is around again is around the order of five hundred billion dollars, uh, something like that. A lot of their exposure is taken through futures because that's obviously a very efficient way to, to particularly to get leverage. Um, and you know the the way they will react to a an increase a, a trend breaking if it's accompanied by an increase in volatility. So we're, you know, which is what you classically see in, say, the equity markets. Then, although the sign of their position won't change because they're risk parity, so they're always long only. Um, the size of their position will change, so they will be sort of trying to to sell at the same time as the trend followers are trying to sell. So those two things together could potentially create, you know, a very a very fast downward movement in the market. So I think it's unlikely, but it's possible. Um, and I'll, you know, we we did when I was working at AHL, we did, for example, cap our positions so we were never more than a certain percentage of the open interest, because we we were worried about about this problem of potentially being stuck in a, a position with a lot of other people. Um, now the hard thing to say is how would you detect it? Um, and I guess there are there are, you know. There might be something you could do with the commitment to traders reports, which tells you which percentage of different people in a particular contract are from different groups, but those groupings are very vague, you know. Um, so it, that that's probably not a lot of help. Um, Andreas Klano, who is a, a, a you know known to both of us and a, a friend of the program, he has this 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 little trading strategy which tries to identify where he thinks that. Um, there's been a long good trend that's just broken and he basically aims to kind of get out before the trend followers and sort of sell you know sell for a few few days it's i think it's a time a time limited trade so he with the expectation that there'll be a lot of kind of forced selling and then on the other side of that you know it'll it'll be gone so you know you you could try and develop things that look for long slow trends and then short breaks and then aim to get out of them but ahead of everybody else you know, I, I think the, the safest thing to do in that situation is more just to have a diversification across time and include some strategies that are a bit quicker um, and, and that will allow you to benefit a little bit from the trend breaking. But yeah, it, it's it's one of those things that would be nice if you could do it, but I think it's extremely difficult to pull off in practice. I, I think it's a fair question um, that Richard asked, but I, again, I just don't think we should spend our time trying to figure out if something is overcrowded or not. In fact, I mean, as trend followers, we don't mind things being overcrowded. The point, as you rightly make, is we need to have some, you know, well thought through exit 
strategies that means that we don't necessarily have to get out at the same time as everyone else. We need to have proper risk management so we don't have too much uh, invested in any one particular market. Um, and we, and therefore we need diversification. So I don't think it's a it's an issue that we need to worry about. And by the way, as I said uh, earlier today, um, these strategies have been working well for 50 years. I'm sure some sometimes there's been quote-unquote overcrowding um, in, in a market. But I will agree, and I think this is the most important point, I don't think trend following is going to be overcrowded anytime soon because people don't fundamentally like the strategy, right? Um, it's it's uh, So I don't think that's going to be a big issue. It doesn't mean that there won't be people betting in the same direction for, for periods of time. Of course there will, because everybody is secretly a trend follower. They just don't want to call themselves a trend follower. But there we are. Um, thanks for the question, Richard. We're going to move on to a question from someone who calls himself Y. Um it would be nice if people use their real name when they send in the question, frankly. Sometimes I will not take a question if you're anonymous. I think, you know, if we give our time and dedication to this, at least what people could do is to be, um, you know, tell us who they are. Anyways, I will take the question today. Um, and that is, um, should traders rely on the experience of past wars slash conflicts or is this time different? I guess it depends on what kind of trader you are. If you're a systematic trader, you've got a backtest. My backtest goes back to 1970. You know, so that let me think. Um, there was um, an uh, you know there was an Arab-Israeli war in the 1970s. Um, there was the Gulf War in uh, 1990. Um, there was uh, obviously the Balkan conflicts in the mid 90s. There was the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan in the early 2000s. Um, and there's the situation we're in at the moment, and I've probably missed a lot of other wars and conflicts, and I apologise for, for that because there have probably been quite a lot. Um, and and you know my trading strategy doesn't doesn't treat wars any differently from any other event. Uh, it doesn't say okay, there's a war happening now, I'm going to do something different. Um, the wars, the you know the the conflict situations and the crisis just form part of the you know the the, the general pattern of what's going on, and they're not weighted any more or less heavily than than any other um you know month or or year of data that that there is there so implicitly my trading strategy treats the current conflict the same as any other conflict but actually it's treating the current conflict the same as any other day effectively yeah um of course if you're a non systematic trader if you're a discretionary trader then you know that you might want to think differently but um i'm not even sure how you would trade a war i mean I think, and we might have time to talk about this, but I think I think there are interesting things going on in the financial markets with respect to this particular conflict that we probably haven't seen since um, the Second World War, and that that might mean you want to do some certain things differently. But in terms of specific trades, I mean, yeah, okay. In in the Gulf War in 1990, the price of oil went up. The price of oil tends to go up when a one of the countries involved is a major oil producer. And also because wars tend to use a lot of petrol, and because it's a crisis, so you know if if you could see it coming, then then you would you should buy crude oil, obviously, um, and th buy things like gold and uh, you know Japanese yen reserve currencies, Swiss francs. Um, there are the kind of obvious kind of pro pro war trades, if you like, pro crisis trades you could put on. And this war is not that different from from previous conflicts in that respect. But but yeah, 
at least so far, right? This yeah. is the whole point that these things are unpredictable by nature, and therefore we always argue that uh, you shouldn't try and 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 make money from predictions. You should follow your rules and your process. That's what it's all about. The good news is, Rob. I don't think we're talking to many people who are not somewhat systematic in their approach, actually. I don't think there's going to be many of them uh, tuning into the podcast anyway. So uh, so hopefully people will just stick to their knitting, either do it as an allocator, you know, have your diversified, well-diversified uh, portfolio uh, allocated across different strategies, assets, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, if you are managing your own money, um, just follow your rules. Um, there we are. Next question is from Emra. Emra writes, um, since Rob will be joining this weekend, I thought it would be a good time to ask the following question. I'm trying to manage my overall wealth similar to the strategy described in Rob's book, Smart Portfolio, whereby I have a large portion of my portfolio in long-only assets, heavily diversified across equities, bonds, precious metals, as well as across jurisdictions and subtypes coupled with the futures trend-following system. According to my current macro bias, I am very bullish on how well trend falling could do this year, especially um, those who have commodities. And I try to get away with the highest percent allocated to trend falling, which is currently at 20% cash weight of the overall portfolio. My question is, when the trend falling strategy does well, as it did last week, WTI, corn, soybean rally... I am supposed to reduce my exposure to trend following and divert my capital to long-only assets, which went down recently in a risk parity fashion. Psychologically, I found this rebalancing very hard to do as I'm very bullish on the trend following component. Should I nevertheless do it, any advice, personal experience, greatly appreciated. Of course, we don't give any financial advice, Emra, on this podcast. No. Absolutely not. No. But... If you were just going to speculate, Rob, what would you speculate? Um, so this is obviously, he's, because he's obviously a big fan of mine, he's got a portfolio that's not similar to mine. Um, I also have an allocation to trend falling and a bunch of long only assets. Although I'm the percentage, 20%, my mine is, I'm not telling you what mine is because that would give away too much personal information. But um, I think the, the easiest thing to do with this question is to just be very abstract and get away from the fact that it's trend following um, and say, well, let, let's say I've got two assets, A and B, and I'm, I'm holding them in a risk parity portfolio. What's the optimal rebalancing strategy? Um, and as this is the day when we plug all of our previous podcasts, let's let's plug the conversation that you and I have with Cam Harvey. Oh yes, um, where, who you know written this very interesting book in which there was a whole chapter on on optimal rebalancing strategy and momentum. Um, and basically, the idea is that. Your optimal rebalancing strategy will depend on many things like, for example, costs and taxes, um, but it will also depend on the um, sort of conditional performance of an asset dependent on what its performance has been recently, um, which, you know, a, a fancy way of describing is, is to call it autocorrelation. Uh, so assets that are positively, have positive autocorrelation, that means if they've done well in one time period, they're likely to do well in the next time period, vice versa for doing badly. Assets that have negative autocorrelation have basically sort of mean reverting performance. So if this has been a bad month, it's more likely that next month will be a good month. Um, and different assets have different autocorrelation properties over different time periods. Um, and, um, you know, so you also need to think about your frequency of rebalancing. So you're doing it every month, you're doing it every year, or, or and so on and so forth. So the question comes back to whether abstracting away from costs and so on and so forth um, at the rebalancing frequency that that um, uh, 
Emre is using, is it is momentum, say, an auto, a, a strategy that's got mean reversing performance properties? So in other words, if momentum's done well, is it more likely that it's going to do badly? Let's say he's doing it every month. If it's done well this month, is it likely it's likely to do well or badly next month? If it's more likely to do well again next month, then he shouldn't rebalance. He should just let it ride effectively. If it's more likely to do badly next month, then he should rebalance. Now, the bad news is, is actually that's actually quite a difficult question to answer because um, the statistical evidence is pretty weak. And interestingly, um, I said I would briefly plug my new book where, where it was relevant. Um, there was a kind of general finding, and some Winton did some research on this, that momentum funds, CTAs, had weak, had sort of fairly weak mean reversion properties at slowish timescales, so like six months to a year. And I have actually, when I was doing my research, I found the opposite result. And I think some of the reason for that could be to do with performance fees, because performance fees tend to, to make things more mean reverting. Um, and it's, I won't go into the detail now, but intuitively that makes sense. Um, so th there's no clear answer kind of e in terms of evidence as to whether you should be kind of, we you know, as to whether momentum is something you should kind of leave your chips on the table for, if you like, and not rebalance or whether you, you, you should you should rebalance. Uh, now, strictly speaking, if there's no clear evidence either way, you should be rebalancing, right? You should be taking money out and putting it into your other assets. Um, I would say that often if things are psychologically difficult, that means they're going to probably make you money. Um, <laughs> because, you know, one, one of the reasons I believe momentum works is because people are really uncomfortable doing it. Um, I, I think it, what I would do is to say, well, think about trading costs and also think about, you know, maybe say, well, right, I'm going to do some rebalancing, but not all of it. So it's a compromise. So maybe you might put in a rule saying, okay, every 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 amount of money I make above above a certain amount, I'm going to put half, take half of that out and put it into my long-only assets, say. So create a rule, a systematic rule you're comfortable with and then stick to it. Um, and then I think once you've made that conscious decision to do that, you'll you'll actually find it a lot easier. And the key thing here is, and this is actually a very important philosophical point, the key here thing here is to make sure that you would be comfortable with that particular rule. So if you aren't comfortable doing a full rebalance, then do not do not try and do that, right? Because you're not going to be able to stick to it. You're going to end up in this weird no man's land where you, you don't rebalance at all and then you wish you had and, and you'll just be angry with yourself uh, and the whole point about the way we work in terms of being systematic is to try and get away from that right and just follow rules sometimes the rules will do well sometimes it'll do badly but but just stick to the rules so so that's that's the approach i would take yeah no i like the idea of rules based but i would just add one thing and that is i've heard some people where they do have to rebalance in their portfolios uh, for the products they run. I've heard it more often recently where they just say, well, we're going to give it a band, right? So if you say, okay, long term, I think my allocation to trend funds should be 20%. Well, they actually won't necessarily rebalance unless it gets above 30 or below 10. So there's quite a wide range there because over time, most likely it's going to stay within that. So effectively, you're, you don't have to do it that often. But if it comes to an extreme, you would do it. And then as Rob says, it's a hard rule. You just do it and don't get too emotional about it. Maybe that's a way forward. I'm going to move forward because we still have quite a few questions. So I'm going to jump into a question all the way from New Zealand. Nice to have people listening to us on the other side of the planet, pretty much. It's from Jean. 
Gene writes, hi, Nils, hi, friends. Um, I've been listening for a year now, and I'm at the stage of taking my first trades just to get comfortable with the realities of implementing a breakout system in the real world. My first entries were long silver and long platinum. On the evening of the 24th of February, New Zealand time, both reversed in my face extremely quickly and wicked down uh, to just below their stops overnight, but were back above the stops by the close. I woke up too late to act on the exit signal precisely, as my rules intended, and while it's possible to automate the entries and exits to trigger while I'm asleep, on some platforms I now see the advantage of only calculating signals after the close. I seem to uh, recall that turtles would enter positions as soon as the entry was signaled within the trading session. Correct me if I'm wrong. How do you and your guests reason about the timing of your trade? Do they automate anything to avoid the system interfering with your life? Thanks, Gene. So I know you have some thoughts on this as well, uh, Rob, and of course you are fully systematic. You can go on holiday on a on a on a on a little island with no internet connection, and you still will be uh, trading uh, as if nothing um, has happened. Um, but of course, we're not all that sophisticated. Um, the way I see it, Gene, it's more of a philosophical question in a sense, and that is, if your stops get hit, but you don't react on it and actually the price moves back within your stop should you do it and my answer would be yes i mean you may have to do it at a different time when you wake up and there you either going to have some positive slippage in this case you might be able to do the trade at a better price the reason i would do it is that is what your back test would have done and i think it's so important to always remember that we test what we trade and we trade what we test and so you should not make any exception for your real uh, time trading, even if a situation like this comes along and, and you might actually be able to stay in a trade. Because the point is, it's not really the trade you're supposed to be in. In this case, you're supposed to be out and therefore you should be out. So I would just follow the rules. If your timing of your entries and exits are not I, you know, exactly lined up with when the stop got hit, Okay, then just do it as quickly as you can. This, these things do happen. And then maybe over time, do like Rob, get to a point where you can automate or upload your signals and your orders uh, on a platform. So it will be done while you are asleep because sleep is important. Rob, what are you? Yeah, I mean, just to say that although I'm fully automated, uh, in the sense I have a similar problem in that I generate my signals after the close every day. And I've already talked about how I've already generated my signals for Monday and I'll have a closing European V-Stocks trade. So that trade will be done, you know, with effectively a one business day lag from when it, when you know, when the price was generated. I do a couple of things. So the first thing I do is in my back test, I actually lag all of the prices one day when I calculate my trading P&L. And I do that to check that, that I'm not losing out too much from this one day delay that I've kind of, is fixed from the way, I, because of the way I trade my system every day. The answer is that, that it's, Essentially, the difference between my PL with and without that one day lag is zero on average. Obviously, there are some days when it's better, some days when it's worse, and so on and so forth. And I also do a similar check in live trading. So I check the final, my executed price against the previous closing price, and I look at that number. And again, I'm just checking to make sure that on average that number is zero, basically. 
and I, I'm accounting for slippage and stuff as well, so because obviously that would that would affect it. But the, I, I could basically say, well, this much of the price difference is down to timing, and then this much is due to slippage. You know, you can separate those out. So that's the first thing to say. And 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 I do actually have um, a similar issue in my my. I have a, a UK stock portfolio which is systematic but not automated. So the same situation effectively. Um, that the questioner is in. And uh, yeah, I mean, just as recently as on, um, you know, Tuesday or Wednesday, I think it was, um, you know, I, I basically get alerts when things hit stop losses and then I have to go and manually close the trade. And, you know, yeah, I, I was I was doing other things and I missed the, the trade by a couple of hours and, and it had gone down by more. But, you know, did, I still closed it at that level. If, if it had recovered... I would have still closed it at that level because it, it's hit the stop. So, you know, I'm systematically following the rules of the system, um, in, but manually in that case. So, so yeah, it's great. It's great to be fully automated. It's not always possible, but, but um, you know, just being fully automated doesn't necessarily get you away from this this issue that, that you you know, if, if you're generating your trades at the close and then doing the next day, yeah, of course, there's going to be a difference in the price, but but that's what I backtested. That's what I'm trading, as you say. Yeah. All right. So we're going to move into a question from uh, Akul. And actually, Akul refers to the episode that we talked about just before with um, Cam Harvey. It's actually Top Traders Unplugged series, uh, episode 117. We did it back in December of last year. That's where you can find it if you want to dive more into it. I mean, it's always very, very useful to listen to Cam uh, speak about these things. And I'm just going to read the question but I'm going to take out the first bit because he essentially a cool refers to some papers that he emailed me. Uh, I think those were the papers that we discussed on the in the conversation, or at least that you referred to, maybe uh, Rob, in the conversation with Ken. But anyways, I'm just going to jump into the email. What the papers are essentially doing is dividing the market environment into four different market cycles. Bull, correction, bear, rebound. They use two different speeds of trend following to define these market cycles. A bull market is when both the slow, which is 12 months look back, and the fast, which is one month look back, are long. Bear market is when both the slow and the fast uh, are short. A correction is when the slow is long, but the fast is short. And the rebound is when the slow is short and the fast moving average is long. Correction and rebound are defined as momentum turning points. They then optimize the weight between uh, the, the weight allocated between the slow strategy and the fast, depending on which speed performed better in the subsequent months. Intuitively, you would want to allocate more to slow after a correction because bull markets typically tend to be slow moving in nature. On the flip side, you want to allocate more to fast after the rebound because the bear markets are quick paced. This intuition is confirmed in both in-sample and out-of-sample testing. The authors call this technique dynamically adjusting the weights among different speeds of momentum. This is slightly different from a static portfolio where you are not really changing the allocation to the different speeds of momentum, which is... I presume what you and most of your co-hosts personally do by allocating equal percent of your portfolio to the group three models. I think this is more refers to how I divide my uh, trend following model up. My question, allocating to different speeds of momentum slash trend following is clearly beneficial as a diversifier. Why not dynamically change the allocations to different speeds of momentum, as Cam suggests, to make the portfolio more dynamic 
opportunistic. Things are cool for this question in the background. Um, Rob? Because it's too complicated for me, is the short answer. Um, I mean, it's one of these things that, that I mean, I, you know, I have a huge amount of respect for Cam as a, an academic researcher, and, and the last thing he would do is, is you know, just data mine an effect. So it probably is real in the sense that it's really in the data, it's not just data mined. I have concerns about the fact that bull and bear mean different things for different asset classes. So, um, you know, in, say, volatility markets, a bull market volatility would be very much definitely be a bear market in equities, for example. So do you kind of switch them around in that sense? I, I don't really know. I think it might be, and I and I have to be completely honest with you, it's been a few a few months since we did that interview and since I read Cam's yep. book, so I'm not 100% sure of the details, but a lot of these kind of timing effects go away when you move to a, a sort of system where the strength of your trend drives the size of your position, which is what I do. So for example... If I look at, say, the dynamic allocation between momentum and carry, if you're using uh, like a fixed position sizing, so if you're long, you're long, and that's it, one unit of risk is short, vice versa, um, then you can improve upon that system by adding in an overlay that, that changes the allocation between momentum and carry depending on how strong they are in relative terms. Or you can do what I do, which is to size the positions according to the strength of the forecast. They're basically equivalent but with one, you keep your relative weights of momentum and carry the same and let the signals themselves decide how strong they want to be. With the other, the signals are always the same strength and you dynamically change the weight between them. Now, as I said, I don't know if um, exactly how Cam's done it, but it's possible that um, this, if you include forecast strength in your slow, fast speeds, then you'll get basically much of the same effect in the sense that if you kind of think about it, at the bottom of an upturn in a market, um, your fast trend following is going to have quite a strong signal on it. Your slow trend following is going to have a flat signal. So that's dynamically, effectively dynamically allocated more to fast trend following, right? Um, similarly, you know, um, at the at the top of a market, your you know your slow trend following will probably still have quite a strong signal. Your fast will probably be flat because it's just about to change its mind so you will you'll start your position will start to reduce in anticipation of the sell-off that's to come so you know that's one possibility f that explains this effect um but even if that's not the case um for me it's just it's just too complicated my, my, my system's pretty damn complex already and um you know i, I it's it's a complex it's some, one of those things that may add value but i just just for me it's not worth the effort no and i think that i think that's a good point actually um that and, and i agree with you i think uh i i really do think that you have to be incredibly careful or cool about uh adding too much complexity in something that is meant to be relatively simple and straightforward and on top of that i would say i would do it differently I think that it's fine to have, uh, and we all do. We have all we have different speeds, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and so on and so forth in our models. I think it's fine to do a recalibration sometimes of your system to maybe um, select slightly different parameters based on a certain period of time, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But but the thing about you want to kind of try and predict a, a regime: bull, bear, correction, rebound. I think there's. There's getting too much uh, prediction into that um, process, so I would I'll, I would also um, advise against that. I do want to jump to the last couple of questions because I know we have a hard stop uh, coming up pretty soon. Zach writes in, um, 
He writes, thank you for taking the time to generate the podcast content, the discussions between you and the co-host and guests get me thinking critically about my portfolio construction, how to improve my trading process, and most importantly, how to maintain the correct mindset for trading long term. I'm constantly looking forward to the episodes and forwarding the episodes to friends and family members. And I believe the podcast content is valuable for investors of all types. Well, thanks of all, first of all, for that sack. That's really kind. When time allows, please ask Rob more about trend following volatility instruments. I currently side uh-huh. with you. It comes about, back. Yeah, I knew it was going to come up today. I currently side with you about volatility being mean reverting, but the episode with Jason Bach and Rob's comments in Systematic Investor episode 175 has me thinking there must be a way to add these instruments to a systematic trend following portfolio. I want to hear your answer, Rob, but I do. I will say that I have a hard stop in about 10 minutes, so uh, just so you be aware of that. And there's one more question, by the way. I'm going to do my, my second and last plug for my new book now. So one one thing I did in my book was to kind of say, well, if we're, when we're trend following, we're trend following a, a back-adjusted price, so-called, um, which implicitly includes the returns we get from the roll-down or carry in the futures curve. So that means that that when we're making profits from trend following particular markets, some of that could just be because there's a really nice trend caused by the fact that it's a market with strong carry-on momentum in it. Some of it could be caused by the fact that the actual spot price itself is moving in a way that's predictable in terms of causing trends. So doing that exercise, I found that, for example, in the metals and the equities markets in particular, the carry component, if you like, of the price wasn't really adding much value. So the returns that, that that we were getting were mostly coming from predictable trends in the spot price. But there were quite a few markets where that wasn't the case. And these are mar- so these are markets where once you take out the, you know, if you just focus on, once you take out the carry, if you just focus on the spot price itself and say, well, I want to try and trend follow the spot price, the, the returns you thought you were getting actually disappear. And one of those is the volatility markets. So specifically in numbers, if I trend follow uh, the vol markets, and and to, to caveat here, there are only two vol markets in my data, uh, sorry, three vol markets in my data set. So it's not a huge number of markets. So a little bit of a caution here, but but the average performance of those markets in sharp ratio terms is 0.5, which is very good for an individual market. Um, if I did the same thing, but I just focus on trend following the spot, that 0.5 falls to 0.15, so it falls by more than two-thirds. Um, and that that is the biggest fall you get in any asset class with the exception of the FX markets where the trend-falling P&L goes from about 0.2 to exactly zero. So it implies that it's all carry. Um, so you, we're both right, I guess, Neil. So um, you're right in that the, the actual spot volatility process is has some trend-following power you can... You know, it's not bad, but but there are there are some trends there that occur. But you're right; it, it's it does seem to be mostly mean reverting, and a lot of that's time frame. So it tends to mean revert sort of six month, one year periods. You, you'll see quite strong mean reversion there for shorter time periods. It does seem to trend a bit. But but if you you know if because the carry of this series is so strong and mostly in one direction. Um, although at the moment, as you pointed out, we're right at the start. We have an inverted uh, volatility futures curve, so the carries in the other direction. You actually get carry from owning a long position in VIX or, or V stocks. 
but that's sort of dominating what's happening in the back-adjusted price. So if you just try and follow the back-adjusted price and don't care about what else is happening, you actually make pretty decent profits trading volatility. I appreciate that answer. I hope that people will just remember your words when you said, Nils, I think you're right. And then that's it. They don't need to remember anything else. That's all. We can put <laughs> the rest down. That's all right. we need to know about this. Okay, good. Last question from Carl. I enjoy this program more than any other. It's like hanging out with colleagues at a favorite restaurant table after an eventful day. I have a question on strategy rebalancing. Some of the top trader colleagues and uh, are uni strategy. Uh, Jerry is the standout, and several others are multi-strategy. An observation which led me to ask this question, when I Google multi-strategy portfolio, I get a noisy storm of results from various managers about their multi-strategy funds. When I Google multi-strategy portfolio rebalance, I get a result of total silence, or as I like to say, I hear only crickets. So for those who have multiple strategies, A, when do you rebalance across your strategies, and B, when do you rebalance, how do you go about reducing and increasing positions on the strategies with balances being reduced or increased uh, from the rebalancing decision? I think the good thing here, Carl, is that it obviously ties into the question we had earlier today. Hmm. Uh, I should have lumped them together. I didn't pick up on that, so I apologize for that. Um, but I think you got a lot of information in that question that relates straight to your own or in that answer that straights to your question, meaning that you can obviously give your strategy some kind of ban so you don't have to you know, reallocate or rebalance uh, too often. But what I will say, and, and, and you can add uh, uh, what you want here, uh, Rob, what I will say is that, yeah, I mean, if you're doing a rebalancing, you know, what you have to do between strategies, yeah, you, you would have to reduce those positions that gets rebalanced. You know, that's just how it is. And obviously you would have to... Um, maybe also take cost into account in terms of making sure you don't end up rebalancing too often. So giving it a little bit ban, I don't know what you meant by different strategies here, but if you have different strategies within your trend following program or whether it's trend following versus other things you do in your portfolio like Rob does, then I, I still think that giving them a little bit of a ban to operate within before they have to get rebalanced, to me that makes that makes common sense. Yeah, Quick comment? Yeah. yeah, it also theoretically reduces costs, which is a point yeah. I forgot to mention earlier. Yeah. Uh, one more thing to do, if, if you're doing a rebalance in terms of straight replacement, in other words, you've, you've got a strategy A, you're replacing it with strategy B, which can happen, and we just, you know, I did it a few months ago myself when I moved to dynamic optimization. It can often make sense to do that change gradually, mm -hmm. um, so over a period of several weeks, um, and um, I, there are a couple of reasons for that. One, it, one, it reduces um, costs again, Secondly, um, it means if there's any kind of operational or software problems with a new strategy, you minimize the impact. So you don't immediately switch over and realize you've made a huge mistake and you've got a serious problem on your hands. And uh, thirdly, it reduces your kind of um, your regret function, in other words. So in other words, even if strategy B is better than A on a back test, you know you're going to feel really bad if you switch over and on day one, B loses more than A would have done. Um, and so um, if you're if that psychological bias is an issue for you and it is for a lot of people, then um, doing it gradually over a period of few days kind of stretches that that kind of regret out and means you'll be less likely to be like, oh, why did I turn this thing on? It's sort of losing money. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you guys for all the questions. This was fun. Unfortunately, it also meant that we didn't get to any of the topics that Rob and I had prepared. So you're going to miss out on that. Hopefully, we're going to be able to bring those to you uh, next time Rob is back, uh, which will be in a few weeks. Maybe we'll 
figure some another way of bringing those uh, topics to you. But I do want to quickly run through the performance before we wrap up as usual. Beta 50 index as of Thursday evening up 1.55 for March, up 4.84 for the year. Uh, the SOCGEN CTA index uh, up 3.34, up 8.15 for the year. SOCGEN trend up 3.38, up 10.81 for the year so far. SOCGEN short-term traders index up 1.2% uh, for the month of March, up 3.10 for the year. Trend barometer 66, very strong reading. You can find that on the website. And of course, right now, MSCI World Equity Index down 2.73% as of Friday, down 1037 for the year. And the World Government Bond Index is up a little bit, uh, about 94 basis points so far in March. But of course, it has been down both in January and in February. Uh, as mentioned before, please go and help us out with a rating and review in uh, Spotify, iTunes. They all help. Make sure you also go and check out the midweek episodes that uh, we're posting. At the moment, we're doing Alan's Allocator Series. And there's some really interesting uh, conversation with CIOs about asset allocation, portfolio construction. They are definitely must-listen two episodes next week i'm joined by jerry for another hardcore trend following plus nothing lesson no doubt so make sure you send in your questions for uh, jerry as usual yeah. info at toptradersunplugged.com no need to rebalance when you only trade one strategy well that's exactly keep it simple um from rob and me i hope you enjoyed it thanks so much for listening we look forward to being back with you next week and in the meantime most importantly take care of yourself and take care of each other Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.